One of the things I realized when I started this company is that I believe before starting France that you know if you have a good idea, if France is a good idea operating in a big market at the right moment, then the company is going to be successful. And it's absolutely wrong. Like the truth is, if you are not focused on the right things, if you don't hire the right people, then your company isn't going to be successful independently from how good your idea is. Hello and welcome to another episode of Secret Leaders from Infamous Media. I'm Dan Murray-Serta and this is the UK's startup podcast where you can learn from top entrepreneurs. Today I'm talking to Mathilde Collin. She's the co-founder and CEO of Front, a platform that brings together businesses' communications in one powerful inbox so they can talk much more effectively with their customers. The company has grown hugely and built a cult following since its founding in 2013, recently announcing a massive Series C round from startup operators that include Eric Yuan, the founder of Zoom. But it hasn't all been sunshine and rainbows for Mathilde. Find out how she overcame burnout, a seriously ill co-founder, and a strong case of competitiveness that almost let work take over her whole life. But before all that, we're going back to the start. Over to you, Mathilde. So I was raised in France, uh, in the suburb of Paris. I was very lucky for a few reasons. I was raised in a family where uh, my parents really loved me, and uh, that gave me so much happiness, confidence, um, and I think that's the best gift I received. Number two is I was lucky because I felt like I had the skills that were required to succeed as a kid when you're raised in France. So I was good at school and not everyone in my family was that way. And I think I felt that life was pretty unfair from the day I was conscious because on the one hand, I was a very, very happy kid for the, reason, for the two reasons I mentioned. And on the other end, I was also realizing that it was not really thanks to anything I had done. So that's how I would describe my childhood. Very, very happy and also very aware of the fact that that was unusual or just I didn't take it for granted. Then I, for the longest time, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I uh, would grow up. Specifically, the thing that impacted me a lot when I was a kid was most of the people in my family didn't like their jobs or, you know, I heard them say so often, like, so happy that it's the weekend. I don't want to go to work on Monday. It's going to be vacation soon and I look forward to it. And because I was a happy kid interested in a lot of things, I didn't want to grow up because I felt like growing up and, and going to work five days a week, so many weeks a year and not enjoying it was painful. And I think that's what led me to doing what I do today. And, you know, we can, we can talk about that later, but uh, it's always been at the back of my mind that I wouldn't settle for what I felt like a lot of people had settled for. Love that. Okay. So good, good influence. And what was life like at home then? Super peaceful. Um, I realize it now because I, I so I am married. I've been married for three years and the funny thing is, we went back from, so I live in the US, in San Francisco. My family is in France. Uh, we had a daughter and uh, in September last year. And so we went back home for Christmas and we were very lucky because it was the middle of COVID. But we went back for two months and I got to spend one month with my family and one month with my husband's family. And it was so fascinating because I don't think that in your adult life, you get to spend a lot of one month. I was on maternity leave. It wasn't paternity leave. So also we were not working. And I don't think that a lot of adults get to spend one month not working in a family that's not theirs. And for me, it was super fascinating because what I realized was, I think as a 
as a kid, a teenager and an adult, you're trying to do what you think was good about your family, but you're also trying to do things that you think wasn't good. And, and I think you believe that you're doing a good job. Like if you ask me, are you like your family? I would say, oh, there are so many things that are different about me. And then you go in another family for one month and you realize that in fact, you're so close because your perspective is very narrow. Like, so I realized that, you know, home was a place where people didn't argue at all. Like it was a lot of love and peace and on one end it's really good on the other end it also I think made me less strong because now when I have conversations or arguments I feel like I'm less equipped to having these so peaceful is how I would describe it. I guess coming forward to then, uh, you know, your early young professional life looks like that you've moved very quickly from being an intern to a founder, like two years later or something, right? So I guess the question is, what was that shift like? What did you see as an intern as your sort of window of opportunity? And like, like take, take us through the journey to becoming a founder, so to speak. So I think the journey started a few years before I graduated. I remember that so in France, you do the thing, it's a preparatory school, two years, you work super hard. And then, um, so I went to business school. And so after two years, you have an exam, you're ranked from like one to, I don't know, 3000. And then depending on your ranking, you can get to the first, second, third, blah, blah, business school. And so I was maybe, I don't know, 16 at the time, can't remember, maybe I was doesn't matter. But I remember that um, we had some interviews to go to business school. And during interviews, people would ask you, what do you want to do in life? And I remember that some people were saying, because we could watch some of the recordings, some people said, I want to be an entrepreneur and start a company. And in my head, I was like, I wish I could say this. But I don't feel the confidence that I can say, I wish I could start a company. So I remember that it was exciting, but I didn't get the self-confidence for me to say this. So instead, what I was saying was, I care about uh, social entrepreneurship. I want to do something good for the world and I'm going to join an NGO and these are the you know topics I care about and that's what I said. All right, so after that, I studied and then I studied social entrepreneurship. I realized that I liked the topic, but the truth is I didn't get any network, any money, and I just felt like uh, in order to be to have the biggest impact, I probably needed to work to actually have some money, some network, some experience that I could apply to a topic I care about. So then I decided to do an internship in a startup and also in a big company. I did two of them. I loved every day of my startup experience and didn't like the big company as much. So after I graduated, decided to go in a small startup uh, where I launched a new product for them. So I was doing everything from selling to support to product management, everything. And I stayed one year actually in this company and then I quit. And of course, my goal was not to stay one year. I had anticipated to stay way more. But two things happened. The first one was I really disliked, I hated the culture in this company. I was extremely unhappy to the point that, you know, sometimes I would come back from lunch and cry, which if you know me, it's very rare that I cry. And so I was extremely unhappy. And the second thing that happened was I met a guy in France, uh, Thibaut Elzier, who happened to be the first person that invested in, in France. And I realized that I could actually get to start a company 
sooner than I had expected because I had to borrow some money to go to school. And so it was not conceivable before that I would start a company after one year. Maybe the, the last thing that happened was it just felt easy when I was in this startup. And then I did it. And then I realized everything is so hard. But for some reason, I'm glad that it felt easy because I think that gave me the confidence to start it. But I don't know if it's a choice more than like it just happened to me. I was too unhappy to stay in this company. And so I, I quit and started front. So, I mean, what is the pitch for Front? What was it when you started and what is it today? Let's start there firstly, so people get the context right now. Great. Let's start there. So when we started, which is different from what we say today, when we started, we said email was not designed for teams. It was made for one-on-one communication. And yet when you see how people get work done, they collaborate a lot. So we're going to create the first collaborative email client starting with one feature, which is if you have a shared inbox, like, you know, support at sales at, you can easily add it and then you'll be able to collaborate with your team. So that's how we started. Seven years later, and after having witnessed a lot of companies, we have I don't know, over 7,000 companies using the product now, we call it a hub for customer communication. So what we saw is that the vast, vast majority of our customers use it to communicate with their customers and whatever your customer is, sometimes it's prospective customer, customer, it doesn't matter. And the thing that makes it unique is the fact that we built it as an email product first. And so it's the combination of being an email product, but with the powerful feature like inside automation, it's sort of a CRM, which means that you can really give this feeling to your customers that it's a very personal communication when in fact you have thousands of people behind the scenes collaborating. The why is twofold. A, I wanted to start a company before thinking I want to start front. And I wanted to start a company because I wanted to create a place where I would be happy to come to work every day and hopefully other people would be happy. And that comes from what I just described to you, which was that was not my experience growing up. And that was not my experience at all in the first job I took. And so for me, it was more a mean to an end than an end in itself. Now, I knew that we had to work on something And I cared a lot about working on a product that would also change how people work. And when I was looking at how I got work done, I was spending as a knowledge worker that's not an engineer, I was spending most of my days in my inbox. And I think because I only spent one year uh, in my inbox, I didn't have all these preconceived ideas that this is how it should work because I've used it for 20 years. And so starting from scratch was super exciting. One thing I would say is I'm a very competitive person. You know, I should have said this growing up as a kid. I actually did so much sports. And when I was not doing sports, I was doing board games. And I heard so much about winning. And even today, if you ask me about my day, because it's um, end of day here, I got upset today. Uh, I got super upset because I lost at a game that I, I thought I was better at than my husband and I lost. So I was, so I'm still very, very competitive. And so for me, operating in a market where I knew the number of people that could use it was huge and bigger than anything I could imagine, because every knowledge worker literally uses email today, uh, was super exciting to me. So I think it was really this combination of, I want to create a place that's a great place to work. I want to make sure that we work on a product that deeply changes how people work. And I want as many people as possible to be able to use it, because I want this company to be super successful, because I'm competitive, but also because I think Success then leads to a lot of the things that I believe will create a great place to work.
If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. Got it. Okay. So um, company starts in France. You have this sort of competitive edge as to the why you would start that business. And there's a couple of things that sort of combine to probably like early days, early product. Where does your co-founder and where does Y Combinator come into the story? So my co-founder, it's actually um, a story that's not typical because as I said, the first person I met that led me to starting this company was the first person that would fund Front. This person also introduced me to my co-founder, so I owe so much to this person. So meeting my co-founder was an interesting story because we had just maybe a month between the moment we met for the first time and the moment we decided to start this company. And during that first month, we tried to get to know each other so well and to ask ourselves so many questions that would you know, help us answer whether we would be good co-founders. So for example, you know, what if I want to fire you? What if you want to fire me? What if I end up having more equity than you? What if you want to sell the company and I don't want to sell the company and all of this? And I think we ask ourselves the toughest questions. It was super easy every time to be on the same page. And today it's been seven years and I love him and uh, we have a ton of respect for each other. So it was definitely a good match. Uh, we started in France. I had never traveled outside Europe. So As you can imagine, I had no plan to go to San Francisco. It was already a big choice to start this company. So the thing that happened was I was dating at the time someone that then became my husband. And he was also starting a company at the same time. And he told me, I'm going to apply to Y Combinator. And I was like, what is Y Combinator? And I said, this is this great thing. And so we applied at the same time and we both got accepted. So super lucky. And then we moved to the Bay Area with our uh, first employee and we loved it and we stayed there. 
how impactful do you think that YC experience was for you? Like, do you attribute much of your uh, now success for the things that you learned there? Or do you think that it's, you know, part of a matrix of, of multiple things? So I definitely think, of course, it's multiple things, but I wouldn't underestimate the impact, not necessarily for the things I learned, because I, I like my, my experience at YC was actually, you know, I went to these dinners and then some outman who uh, led YC at the time was telling us, make something people want, you know, that's all you need to know. And I was like, all right, why did I travel here to learn something that seems so obvious? And then we got t-shirts, make something people want, written on it, etc. And so I think, but at the, at the end of the day, three months later, I realized that it's actually the best advice they can give you. And what you should focus on is focusing on making sure that you're building something people want and building the product and talking to customers. So I think the thing I got from YC was less about the things I learned and more the confidence that Front could be a great company. And some of the things that have been most impactful in my time at YC, I would maybe share two things. The first one was very early on, I was lucky to meet with Patrick Collison, who is the CEO of Stripe, who's super interested in email and email transparency because Stripe implemented this whole email transparency policy since they created the company. And when I met him, I told him about Front and what we were doing. And he told me, such a great idea. And I think you're great. And for me, you know, hearing someone like him, who I admired so much, tell me that he believed in me was a game changer. Uh, and I wouldn't have met him without YC. And then the second thing was maybe our fundraising experience, which was at the end of Y Combinator, we raised from investors in the US and we were very lucky to have a very fast process. And same thing, I think if 30 people tell you, I want to invest in your company, then, and these investors are investors that are recognized worldwide, then it gives you the confidence. And at the end of the day, I think in the early days of the company, that's what I needed the most. And YC definitely gave it to me. Okay, so coming on to some main parts of Front. So the key question I want to know is like, reflecting on your journey so far, what has been the most challenging part of it? So I would say two things. The first one is more personal and the second one is more work-related. So personal, uh, the most challenging part of our journey and just my life in general was four years ago, so halfway through the journey so far, I got extremely anxious, uh, but to the point that I couldn't go to work anymore. And I think what happened was I put so much pressure on myself. I worked so hard. At the time, my co-founder was diagnosed with cancer and going through chemo and um, without his family in the US, I had to take care of him and take care of the company and pretending that everything was great. And I think one day my buddy said, you can't do it anymore. So you're going to stop everything you're doing. And that was such a scary moment for me because I had never experienced anything like this. So I thought, well, you know, first I hate life and also I can't run this company. So my world is collapsing. I think from a work perspective, the most challenging part of our journey has been to choose our focus because I told you it's great. Front is operating in a huge market and it's true. In theory, any knowledge worker could use Front. And I'm competitive, so I don't like to say no because I want to do everything. But literally, it's one of the, like, it's literally the biggest mistake we could do as a company. And at every stage of the company, it's true. Even if 
we've done a good job so far, it doesn't mean that we'll do a good job in the future. And I think being able to say, you know, we're going to focus on these specific use cases, these segments, we're going to talk about front this way instead of saying it's something great for everyone. This go-to-market motion, this feature and not these features, like I think this has been the most challenging part of the company. And, and this is why today I was very happy when you asked me, you know, what does Fran do? And I can tell you it's a hub for customer communication. And really, if you care about this tailor-made communication and your interactions are complex, then please use Front, and I know it's going to be a good fit for you. But a few years ago, I would have said, well, just email made for Teams. Great, everyone needs it. So two answers. So you had this anxiety experience, right? And so you're saying that you couldn't you couldn't go to work. So how are you communicating your current state of mind and your current situation to your colleagues? And more to the point, how did you seek to understand how to sort of approach it like more holistically, I suppose, right? So there's the in the moment, how do I explain this now? And then there's sort of the the plan of how you work through it or live through it. So first I didn't share anything with the company because I couldn't even share it with my parents or my boyfriend, my husband now. So hard to talk about it just because so many dark thoughts were coming in my head that I, it was so scary to me that it was like, if I share it with someone else, they are going to think I'm crazy. It's so scary. They're going to be scared. It's going to add to my anxiety. So I decided to go back to France and I was in PTO because I couldn't like just opening my computer I don't know, gave me nausea. So it's like, I couldn't work. So I was lucky that I could take some time off in France. And I worked on it. And then I went back to the company. And now I'm super open about it every time it happens to me and also like what happened to me. The thing that worked for me is first I realized, you know, there is, of course, not one thing that worked, like not one thing I did and I suddenly got better. But I did pretty much most things that uh, people could do. So from seeing different therapists to doing hypnosis to meditating every day to getting good sleep and exercising to changing my diet completely to like I tried uh, to reading a ton of books. Actually, one book specifically helped me. The the book is called A Mind of Your Own. So I th- that helped me like um, hypnosis specifically helped me a lot. Um, So I'm very grateful for that. So basically what happened was I struggled and then at a point I saw that things were improving. I was just so scared that I would, you know, go back to that state that was unbearable, but things got better. And so that's the moment I started talking about it because instead of being super scared, I became scared, uh, but also hopeful that things could get better. It took me probably a year before I could actually say I'm happy it happened to me. Because today I would say I'm so happy it happened to me for so many reasons, because I have so much more empathy for people living through these things. I think I, I'm i sure I appreciate life so much more now because of all these changes that I made. But it was so painful that for a year I was like, even if these things are true, I would never go through this again. And then I think the moment I realized this, that's the moment I started talking more openly about it. And to be honest, I didn't manage to go back to the team and say, well, you know, I struggle with anxiety because I was scared of basically more anxiety. And so maybe, you know, the team would be scared for me or whatever and then add to my anxiety. So now I talk super openly about it. I During COVID, I was pregnant and then I couldn't go back to France because of everything happening and 
I was definitely super anxious again. And the first thing I did was talking to the company about it. Also because I realized that more people could suffer from it in this crazy time. And I felt like it was useful. So, yeah. I've been following you on Twitter and your your content for a long time. I really like your writing. I really like the articles that you share. I mean, your your Twitter feed's perfectly optimized for mine. Always pop up on my Twitter feed. I always read them. And something that I think you have written about before, you know, is, is, is transparency. So obviously you're talking here about transparency. Um, but I'd love to talk about um, this, like for my own motivation as a founder, I'm always looking to learn from other people. There is a constant agitation or dichotomy inside my head about how transparent to be. Want to be super transparent the whole time. But obviously a common startup story is that transparency really only works up to a certain company size. So, you know, at the moment we're still really transparent, but I always wonder if there is an upper limit to that. So I'd just love to know, um, have you found that? Has your transparency levels inside the company ever backfired? Can you think of examples where that's been a massive personal and professional challenge for you? It has definitely backfired. So when we raised our Series B, I was very transparent with the company that we were raising funds. And that was a a mistake because it was so distracting because it doesn't happen overnight. So then people were asking constantly for how things were going. And so that's one example. And there are many, many more examples. But I don't think that my experience so far has been there is a, a limit of stage number of employees, whatever revenue we're at, transparency is not good. I feel like the rule I've used has never changed, which is it is good transparency is when you share something, it answers a lot of questions, create trust. It is bad transparency if when you share something, it raises more questions than it answers questions. And, and the example of raising our series, we definitely raised way more questions than it answered questions. And I think the truth is that evolves over time. Like the thing that raised questions is different when you're, you know, a 20 person company or when you're a 2000 uh, people company. Uh, but I, we managed to remain extremely transparent. What that means is, um, for example, you know, every quarter we have a board meeting and every quarter I share the board deck with everyone. And so you have everything in this board deck. And I will continue to do so. And of course, maybe when we're a public company, that's a different story and we will have to make it evolve. But I'm so convinced that transparency is the best tool you can use to prevent any politics from happening, to increase engagement in in your company, to create trust that I will never give up. And it is both in the habits we have, the tools we use, like front as a tool is, like the concept of front is you can very easily share a conversation. Instead, like when you think about today, email, the way it's designed, it's your inbox, no one can access it. And therefore, like when you collaborate, you CC, BCC, reply all, you create many copies of everything. And with front, like it's very easy to share a conversation and then comment on something uh, to give visibility to all, whatever, your Twitter feedback, your NPS inbox, etc. And I think it's that's why I care about this company and I get motivation from it. It's because it's literally the value I care the most about. I'm so happy I, did, I said transparency over discipline earlier today. Otherwise, I would not have been consistent But because I'm such a big believer in discipline. But transparency is literally number one. And so every process we have, every tool we use and the tool we make is aimed at allowing that at scale. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think, again, Leaf I've taken out of your book, but we did crowdfunding for our seed round. I've got 700 investors and we do a monthly update every single month, super transparently, all the metrics, everything, what we're bad at, what we're struggling with, all of the things. And then we share it with the team as well. And I think it really saves time. Um, people would obviously argue that that is going to add more time. But I think as you scale, that really saves time, that level of transparency, because and people are there to support you, too. So you're you're getting away from that sort of agitation that people have or concern that people have that something's something's up. Yes, and, and that you're not sharing it. And and I think my best advice is exactly what you said, which is in order to implement transparency in your company, you should think about the processes that you have in place. If monthly you send an update to your team and your investors, then of course you're not gonna not send it one day. Versus like if ad hoc you're thinking, well, I should share this, share that then, uh, of course, the first thought that's going to happen in your brain the moment something goes wrong is, well, should I share it? No, it's going to be tough and people will be concerned. And so I think the more processes you can have, and so for us, it's like weekly all hands, monthly updates, quarterly board meetings, like whatever it is, I think then you never ask yourself, should I share this or not share this? And then uh, that saves so much time because people have the context they need and they know why they're working on what they're working on. Exactly. And obviously, this is a perfect segue for you into your second favorite topic of discipline. So let's talk about discipline then. What does that mean to you? And how do you how do you live it in your life? Well, I'm sure that, you know, most people that know me would think I'm a robot. And that's probably how I'm perceived. So one of the thing I realized when I started this company is that I believe before starting France that, you know, if you have a good idea, if Friend is a good idea operating in a big market at the right moment, then the company is going to be successful. And it's absolutely wrong. Like the truth is, if you are not focused on the right things, if you don't hire the right people, then your company isn't going to be successful independently from how good your idea is. I also realized that I could work an infinite number of hours and still do things that are valuable. And these two things made me realize that the only way I can be successful and happy is to be disciplined, put boundaries, not think about some of the choices I need to make. And that's how I created, for example, a calendar where like, I know what I'm going to do every minute of my day. And I know when I'm going to stop working. I know when I'm going to write emails. I know so many things. I know that every week I'm going to have a date night with my husband. I know that every month with my husband, we're going to ask questions like the one I, did, I do with my direct reports. And that's the discipline that I believe contributes to having such a good balance at work in, in my relationship. So like, I think I was born disciplined. Like the truth is I've always been a disciplined person. So it's hard to you know, know why and how. What's for sure is I realized or rationalized, I don't know, <laughs> that this was a very important skill to be happy and successful. Yeah, I, I get it. And I guess, uh, you know, the next question that springs to mind there is then what's your view on like how you set around work-life balance, that tricky, annoying question that everyone likes to know about? For me, what matters is when I'm not working, I want to make sure that I'm not working. That's the un independently from the number of, then we can talk about the number of hours you work. But I think the biggest thing that prevents people from having a good work-life balance is not necessarily the number of hours, but the fact that when they're off, they're on. And so what works for me is I don't have any work app on my phone. Yes, you can text me, but people know that they never text me. And then I take PTO. And when I'm on PTO, then I, like 
zero work. I was on maternity leave. I took 18 weeks. I had zero access to my emails. And these are just examples of when I want to be in the moment, I need to be in the moment. And the only way is to be completely disconnected. And so, for example, you know, during the weekend, if I'm not working, then my work apps are closed on my computer because otherwise it's so easy to just open it and just check what's going on. This is the thing that works for me. It works for you and it follows literally the science of how to optimize not just your mental health, but also productivity to do your best work. Um, you've got to find that balance. So you're giving plenty of room for your default mode network to get into action and find moments of, of, of spark and creativity as well. Speaking of really enjoying medium articles, following your writing, etc. Um, obviously, the one that most people would know you for is your uh, awesome one announcing your Series C. So your Series C is sort of the stuff of legends, really. Like, you know, it's one of those uh, really interesting, if people hadn't heard of you or heard of your company, they'd now heard of your Series C kind of thing, right? There's like this really interesting cult around how you did it. And I think, you know, it sparks a lot of curiosity, a lot of admiration, and certainly a lot of inspiration for other founders to follow suit as well, myself included. And so um, your Series C, you know, you know, obviously in the in the B2B software game, one way or another, and uh, you have literally attracted some of the greatest titans and entrepreneurs in your space, full stop, to not just invest, but like basically fill up the majority of your Series C round, right? So I'd love to know how that came about. Was it um, organic? Was it intentional? Just give us a little bit of the background and the story. Obviously, it's a $59 million, correct? Correct. And yes, what was unusual is that it was uh, with individuals. And I'll tell you how it happened and, and why. So it was not intentional in a sense that I didn't think we're going to raise our Series C and we're going to do it in this way. What happened was I was lucky because Jared Smith, who's the co-founder of Qualtrics, had been invited to every board meeting. I learned so much from him. I consider him my mentor. He is an incredible person, both personally and professionally. And when I told him, and Qualtrics, I think, had just sold their company to SAP. And when I told him that we would raise our Series C, and I was confident we would raise it because I had some interest from funds. So I also want to give full context so that people understand. So I was confident we would raise, and then um, one person tells me, well, I would love to invest. And I would love to invest, doesn't matter, but enough money that then I was like, mm, interesting. Like, that's a lot of money. And then he also told me, by the way, like, there are a few people that could be interested. He started Qualtrics with his brother. And then I was in touch with the founder of Atlassian because he had been a front user forever, like since the very beginning. And so basically what happened was I realized that I can raise a lot of money from these people and then I can't also have an additional fund because it doesn't make sense. Otherwise, like existing investor won't have their product, they will be sad. And so then I start thinking, well, could I do this in this very unusual way? I'm going to pick like five people that seem relevant for our space. I'm going to ask them and that's how I could do it. And Sequoia, who was our investor for Series B, was super supportive of this and I was very grateful that they helped me on this. The reason I did it was because I felt like, you know, post Series B, we had a great board. Like our investors were very helpful. And when I was thinking about what do we need as a company and what do I need as a CEO, I felt like the operational uh, knowledge experience from these people was 
the most valuable thing I could get at this time. And that's how we did it. And then, so I, we did it and, and you know, everything went super quickly. And then I, after the fact, I realized, well, actually I could have extended it to a few more CEOs. So I regretted it. And then I saw, like for example, Gumroad raised uh, with their customers. And I was like, that's so cool. I should have done this as well. So yeah, I think it was, it was unusual, uh, but I also think that there are more things we can do that are unusual and really cool. Yeah, I uh, it's awesome. And I think the the other one that you obviously didn't mention here, and there's an amazing list of investors that you got in, it's the founder of Zoom, um, Eric Yuan, who like obviously uh, probably the most popular product of the pandemic. So, you know, how do you how do you optimize uh, networking and the ability to meet these types of founders? It is a very common question people would love to know, right? How do you get in front of those people at the right time? And I'd love to know your answer to that. I actually, if you ask me, I don't think I'm very good at networking. So meaning I never go to any, you know, networking events. I think my secret power is to be able to have very vulnerable conversations, like to, to be able to connect with someone in a short amount of time. And so over the years, I've managed to have conversations, for example, with Eric Yuan from Zoom, and it was a 30-minute conversation, but it was meaningful. And so therefore, I knew that when the time was right, I could ask him something. I've always optimized for these deep relationships, even if they are 30 minutes long, versus you know trying to go to an event where maybe I'm going to meet 10 people instead of one, but I would feel like the conversations are too surface level. And then truth is, once you know some people that you trust and you think are great and inspiring, then you trust these people that if they tell you, you should absolutely meet this person, then it's going to be a good use of time. And truth is, like all the relationships I have, I have them because someone has told me you would enjoy. And I am trying to do the same as well to give back. But that's, I don't know, I don't have a better answer than one-on-one -on -one conversations. No, it's a great answer. I think it's really important, right? It's the quality of your conversation, not the quantity. And that is actually the secret. Okay. Have to ask, because fascinated. So you're big on feedback culture. As you said, you have radical candor at the company. You personally been on a big growth journey, and that only happens at a certain speed if you're super receptive to feedback and get better at delivering and receiving. So first question, what's a piece of feedback that you've received that took you by surprise that you're still working on? So, I mean, I can tell you the, uh, the last one I got was literally right before this and I'm still working on it. So when I'm in conversations with people, um, usually I know what, after a few words they've said, I know what they want to say. And so then I interrupt them and I say, okay, got it. And it's super annoying and I still do it even if I'm working on it. So I would say this. Another one uh, I would sure is I'm a pretty sensitive person. I'm, I'm actually a very sensitive person. And so many times I can be triggered by something that's said, upset about something that has been said. And instead of processing this emotion, which is my responsibility and not anyone else's responsibility, I'm going to ask a question and the question is going to be loaded. And instead of, and so then people understand that it's a loaded question, that it's a, you know, the tone is tense or whatever. And what I should do instead is two things. Either I process my emotion and then I'm done and I think I'm good at processing my emotion. So I can do it. But then 
the timing of asking the question matters. And so either I do that or I ask why I'm asking the question. Because then people, like, then I'm faced with my contradictions if there is any contradiction. So it's also something I'm working on. I think the, the sensitivity is super interesting because it's definitely something that has served me well in a sense that I understand people care about them, but also every quality has flip side and is something you need to work on. And for me, being sensitive and being able to be triggered is something I, I need to keep working on professionally and personally. Okay. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? I don't, so I would say that the best piece of advice I've received is to not listen to any piece of advice you receive, meaning like I think it's a very natural human being thing to be willing to share advice. The problem is uh, every situation is different, every person is different, and so you can always share your perspective on what you did, what you learned on a, any given situation, but I don't think you should you know, ever say this is always true. So I, like this is a cop-out in, in some way. But I think that's what I would say. I think professionally, the, the, maybe the advice that helped me the most with front was uh, Patrick Ellison said to me very early on that whenever you're hiring someone in the early days, you should think about whether you want this person 10 times uh, in your company. And that was so valuable because the truth is people then hire people like them. And then I think when you find something annoying, uh, most of the time, as you know, I think as a manager, you're, th- you're saying, well, it's fine. Like, there's so many other things that are great. We'll get through it. Because you really need this person. That helped me the most. Amazing. And uh, I guess to summarize, your, your best piece of advice for our listeners is don't share advice, share experiences. Yes. Next week on Secret Leaders. At one level, it's just this huge knock to your confidence because you think you're all that and then you're dirt, right? At a physiological level, it's like being punched a hundred times in the gut because you're carrying the responsibility of the other shareholders, the workers who are going to get money out of it, everybody. And that is just horrible. It was all there and then 30 seconds later, it's all gone. That was Norman Crowley, who's frankly extraordinary. He started his business when he was 16 and had sold three for $750 million by the time he was 40. He learned to walk on hot coals and missed out on a billion dollar deal, which led to a serious neurological disorder. Tune in next week to find out how he coped and how you can manage stress better too. This episode was hosted by me, Dan Murray-Serta. It was produced by Rich Martel with editing done by Lower Street Media.